0: So now I get to talk about an episode all about forced relocation of Indians that also happens to include Wesley Crusher. (sighs) Can I just pass, can I just peace out of this one? Would that be cool, guys, if I just said, and that's my thoughts. No. (sighs) This episode, which is hysterical to me, is actually being done to set up the Maquis. And Voyager, and to kick out Wesley out of the show, and I stress the difference there, just to give you an idea. Normally, I've I've got this book and it's right here, and I've got it open because I'm going to quote it in a second. But normally, an episode has like you see how it's kind of columned here, so you know there's column, column, column. Usually, an episode has a column, maybe two per episode. Uh, This one has about a page and a half. That's close to quadruple the usual comments, interviews, and behind-the-scenes information. Because the problem is this episode's kind of a mess. And it is. The two plots kind of coexist, but not really. See, the problem was Ronald D. Moore had been pushing since season five to try and do some new stuff with Wesley. And they kept saying, no, 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 no okay fine but you have to do the voyager episode and there's a quote from Moore, and i'm probably not going to find it here but it, it, it's basically him talking about like oh my god finally i'll take any a plot anything to be able to do my wesley story please yeah, i can't find it like i said there's a lot of stuff here i know where the part is i want to read later it's like yes god yes okay finally i can finally do this and so he just took the story and just kind of jammed the two together as crudely as humanly possible and if we're being honest there really is no actual connection between the a plot and the b plot you could argue there is you'd be wrong i hate to say that so bluntly but this is ridiculous so that's the first problem the second problem is like i said the voyager stuff they wanted to lay the groundwork for Voyager. Now, that's not a problem. That's actually a great idea. In fact, if anything, my biggest complaint is they did too little of that. Because this episode established Chicote's heritage. Yes, apparently, even though it's never mentioned anywhere ever, Chicote is actually from this tribe. Now, you can see how the pieces line up being told that. Uh, American Indians who were relocated here from Earth after this big th- hullabaloo. And then they settled here, but then they're under Cardassian territory, which leads to him joining the Maki. Like, you could see how the pieces tie up, right? It, it's all fairly seamless, but they never say that in Voyager. It never comes up. Although, funny story, Ned uh, Romero, who plays the Elder in this episode, also plays Chakotay's grandfather, even though they are supposed to be different characters. I'm suspecting that for, I believe, the third time in TNG, this is a little bit of that, we had to change the names because reasons problem that we had with Vorek and with Tom Paris. I don't know. It's just getting weird. But either way, they did this whole episode to set up the Maquis and Chakotay. Now, a couple problems. First of all, um, this doesn't establish the Maquis. I know they say it does. Everything says it does. All the interviews, all the -the behind-the-scenes, this is the beginning of the Maquis. No, it isn't. (laughs) I actually checked the timeline. The beginning of the Maquis is uh, the Maquis, which actually came out, I think, a month after this, something like that. Very soon after this, over in Deep Space Nine, Maquis Part 1. And it was even Necheyev who was dealing with it on the Federation side, and Gul on the Cardassian side. So good continuity on there. Props to that. But uh, I'll talk about Eve. Actually, really quick, did you notice Gul He was in six episodes of Star Trek. In fact, he shares a really rare distinction of being one of the only actors, uh, excuse me, and characters who's actually in all three shows as the same character. Interesting to think about. But anyways, I'm getting off topic. The point being, uh, Gully Vec was actually apparently well-liked, and the actor that played him. And I think I mentioned this over on Deep Space Nine at this point, like two years ago, back in season one, that they, they liked him and they wanted to keep bringing him back, and that's why he was in six separate episodes, which for a Star Trek character, it's a lot of recurring uh, roles. I sometimes wonder if he was originally going to be the Gold Dukat, that is to say, the recurring Cardassian villain, until Mark Alemo was Mark Alemo. <clears throat> Just blind speculation. I don't actually know if that's true or not. Anyways. So, yeah, they uh, they wanted to establish the Marquis here, even though they didn't, and they want to establish Chakotay, even though they didn't. I sometimes wonder how much internecine conflict was happening at this point in Star Trek. I know it was a lot. So, I mentioned that Moore was pushing the Wesley angle. Well, one of the things he insisted was that Wesley needs to leave Starfleet and go do something bigger and grander. Now, Ronald D. Moore and I basically agree and disagree about 50-50, you know, which, which is fine. I mean, that's, that's normal. But uh, I've always respected him as a writer and his ability to craft stories, and I actually f- agree firmly with his point here. Wesley is supposed to be this great kid who's destined for this wonderful future and blah, 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 and he's, he joins Starfleet and becomes just another Starfleet person. Now, you could say that, well, plenty of people in Starfleet have gone on to do great and wonderful things, and you'd be right, but I have to agree that him just becoming another Starfleet person with nothing special about his career path at all doesn't really sound like the kind of path that Wesley was designed to take. You could argue that them pushing this angle was trying to push away from the continuity of The Traveler, but they just keep wanting to remind you of that. Remember, The Traveler showed up before, and I don't mean in where no one has gone before. Then, excuse me, then you have Michael Peller's perspective. Ah which apparently Rick Berman changed his mind on this one a lot, too. But uh, Michael Piller said, and I'm just going to direct quote here, uh, particularly felt that having Wesley leave Starfleet was, in a sense, a slap in Jeden Ronberry's face, and it would be very unsatisfying and disappointing to the audience to see him turn his back on everything he was working for. Now, you can kind of see where that one's coming from, too. Uh, like it or not, Starfleet has always been portrayed as the good guys. Not counting this episode. And, you know, that's supposed to be the big ideal, is that's that's the goal, is is to be a part of Starfleet. That's like the pinnacle of human life, right? And whether you agree with that or not, the shows have pretty consistently portrayed that throughout the series, so that's, that's nothing new. So you can kind of see that perspective, too. And as much as I disagree with Pillar on this one, I, I can at least see the argument there. In the end, this episode... Uh, just kind of doesn't really know what it wants to do with itself. So the episode starts data shows up uh tells a joke and offers a very natural handshake to wesley now i mentioned that because that shows how much data should be at this point you remember i brought up back in uh eye of the beholder i believe it was where data tried this really awkward method of emulating geordie and i i pointed that out because i thought it was Uh, Wrong, basically, that the data at this point is far more smoother at emulating, you know, normal humanoid behavior. He shouldn't be that awkward or stilted in season seven, right? This kind of makes my point for me that he is far more natural and fluid in doing it. And in fact, he notices that Wesley doesn't actually, you know, get into the joke and then has to point out that it's a joke. Which is, again, very data, because he's like, oh, wait, hang on, maybe I didn't perform the joke correctly. I'm sorry, I need to make it clear that was a joke. That makes perfect sense. And it's little details like that that I like about Moore's writing in general. I I know I I praise the man a lot, but I do really enjoy his style overall. Which is funny, because I don't like Battlestar Galactica, but let's move on. So, Nechev shows up. I did a little digging into Necheyev, since this is, uh, I think, the last time she shows up on TNG. Which means, from our perspective, this is the last time we're really covering Nichaev. I think, Actually, no, I think she shows up one more time. But this is effectively her outing. She has a fairly major role here. And she's... I've given her a lot of flack... And I absolutely do not apologize for that, mostly because she's usually the, f- the mouthpiece for the stupidity of the Federation. I-, I-, I railed about some of the garbage that she said back in early DS9 because it was garbage and it was stupid. But to continue that overall thought, I like how she's portrayed here. This is the Nechev I kind of wished we had. Rather than being a blind mouthpiece for protocol and policy, she is someone who is a hardline military officer who nevertheless is a human being underneath that. There's this great bit where she walks in and she's all business and then she turns and she says, are those uh, cannolis or whatever? They weren't weren't cannolis, that's Italian, but you know, some things? And Picard's like, yeah, yeah, no, I I was told by your uh, your, your attaché that you, you really like these. And she's like, oh thank you. And there's just this moment of, huh. And I noticed in this episode, there's several little tiny human moments there, tiny little tidbits. While Picard is giving the obvious speech, which I'll talk about in a moment, she bothers to mention that she's already made these exact same arguments. Now, it's a really quiet point. And again, this is very Moore's style of writing. But what that means is that she is on Picard's side here. Now, she is basically in the exact same position Picard is. She is obligated to follow orders, so she is, but she doesn't like it, so she's fighting it tooth and nail through the system. You know, the lawful-lawful, the or lawful-neutral, if you prefer, uh, type of approach, right? And that's interesting to think about. This is doubly interesting because Necheyev in character is apparently actually of Slavic descent, and the woman who pra- plays her, forgive me for not knowing her name off the top of my head, is also of Slavic descent, and you'd think someone of the Slavs would kind of want to be against this kind of thing, which it makes sense then that she is. There's actually a bit later on in the episode, which I'll go and mention now, where Picard tries to buy time, saying, I'd like to call an emergency session of the council to try and table this issue and discuss it for a bit longer. Necheyev says, yeah, I tried that two days ago when she first got here. Nice little touches that help to humanize the character. If we'd had more of this... It would have been nice to see more of... Actually, uh, the woman who plays Necheyev... Forgive me for not remembering her name. Does it say you? It does, actually. I have no idea how to pronounce that. Uh, Natalia Nagulich? I have no idea how to pronounce that. I'm sorry. She mentioned in an interview that she actually believed Necheyev would have had a far more recurring role in a Season 8 of TNG if such a thing were to be made. Not that I'm saying it should be, but... Anyways, moving on. So Necheyev shows up. I also discovered one other thing about her. Obviously, she's always been on the front line of the, the Cardassian Federation thing. That's why she shows up so much in all the Maquis-related stuff. Okay, logical. And all the Cardassian-related stuff. I also found out, however, that Picard's actually directly under her flag. She's his direct reporting line. You know, solid line between Picard and Necheyev on the org chart. That's got to suck <laughs> right there feel bad for picard anyways so so then we have so he's like okay let me let me look at my uh my incredibly advanced pad that's that's like this big and only displays one image um and it's like there's several federation colonies on the, the the cardassian border and there's several cardassian colonies in the federation border who wrote this treaty Now, I'm not going to go completely over this again, because I've already ranted about the stupidity of this treaty back in DS9 about a year and a half ago, but this is really, really dumb. I'm actually astonished at the fact that someone decided that this was a good idea, and then the people agreed to it. I know you guys are desperate for peace, because that's one of the Federation's biggest flaws, in my opinion, is that they are uh, peace-hungry which I know sounds like a weird thing to say, but I do think you can be too peace-hungry, too, you know, capitulating. <clears throat> but yeah, they're they're so peace-hungry that they just went along with this for some frickin' reason. Like, what? Then we find out, and that's actually an interesting point here, we find out that some of these people have been settled here for decades, plural, and in fact, the specific colony has been there for about 20 years. Okay, cool. I did a little math. Uh, so, the Cardassian... Federation border skirmishes started 23 years ago. Now, I, I call it that specifically. You've, if you look it up, you'll find it as the Cardassian Federation War, uh, which is stupid. There was no singular war. There was just an ongoing series of skirmishes that lasted about 23 years between the Federation and the Cardassians. Nonstop tension and conflict and actual you know, fighting. During that period of time, people decided to settle on the Cardassian border. Now, I'll get more into that in a minute, but it's just... Even ignoring this particular colony, which has a fully designed, fleshed-out reason for why they settled here, what about the other ones? Then again, we know the Federation, in addition to being peace-hungry, are kind of colony-hungry, too. I mean, how many episodes have to do with one colony or another, including this one? Anyways, so, then Picard gets into the message, resettling is wrong, and let me explain why. You see, in America, there was a bunch of people who resettled the the Native Americans. And he does this whole speech, and I hate to, to be irritated by this point, but he hammers it in so obviously I can't help but think it was written just in case people didn't know about that. Like, like, it was like, as you know, this, this thing happened. It wasn't quite that bad, but it was just a little bit out of place given the rest of the episode is actually surprisingly decent. But it's okay, because Picard is totally in favor of following orders in forcibly resettling a relatively small population for the betterment of the greater good. No, I'm never letting Insurrection go. It should probably not surprise you that Pillar was really pushing that angle of this particular episode. Anyways, so, <clears> of <throat> you know, him, talk, blah, blah, blah. Um, Wesley then decides to go down and be a dick to Jordy, And then that plot... Through, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. I have six notes about Wesley total. <laughs> so let's ignore Wesley for a moment. Um, uh, oh, God. So now I got to talk about resettlement on, on the internet. <laughs> Uh why uh okay so uh as usual all i ask basically the only rule i have in my show really is uh, don't be a dick you know be civil that's literally my only rule if you if i've actually had to ban a few people not because they disagreed with me and not because they thought something that was different or uncontroversial or whatever but because they were being a dick about it because that's unacceptable um <clears throat> so that's the line cool all right, where's my shades here? Hang on. We're going to turn into cool mode, okay? Cool. All right, so uh, where do I even begin? Actually, I don't want to wear these because these are heavy. I'll wear the other ones. nah, I shouldn't even do that. i'm just I'm just trying to delay. I don't want to talk about this. Okay, okay You know, I've never had a home. Uh, capital H, Capital H Home, because I've I've moved uh, many, many times. In fact, I am recording this in a place I have currently lived in for about six months. By the time this video comes out, it's actually likely I will have already moved again. Like, I, you know, my friend calls me a gypsy. I, I've just never found a home, Capital H. You know, I've lived in plenty of places, but I've never found a place to put in roots. Now... I've talked many times on my show about how much I don't understand the value of land, you know, the land argument, right? I've, I've talked about that so many times. Now, who gives a damn if you happen to be there? Well, over the years, I've kind of started, you know, a lot of people have reached out to me and given me their thoughts and feelings on that. And I've seen, uh, well, some people just, you know, like where they're living. But I've seen a recurring trend of people that has to do with significance, Because on the one hand, you know, if if you came to me right now and said, Laura, you have to move from, you know, the the apartment studio thing you got, I'd be like, okay, sure. What does it matter to me, right? I don't care. But if I did care, if this was Home, capital H, then I would be like, well, Hank, why, why do I need to move? Like, this is the place that is relevant to me, significant to me. You know, maybe it's because of family, maybe it's because of tradition, maybe it's because of spiritual beliefs, maybe it's because of this just happens to be the perfect place for me. You know, maybe from a, if you just pour away all of the more intangible things and you just have a place that just really, really is very awesome for you to live in for whatever it is you personally need in order to have a happy, productive, nice, good, etc. life, then, well, that might be home, capital H, for you. And I started thinking about that because I've always wanted a home in my life. I've always wanted to have some place that I could really consider to be a place where I consider, uh, I I don't know, I don't have a better word for it, a a place that is my center, right? Uh, In this episode, uh, the traveler actually asks Wesley, what's sacred to you? And then he goes rambling off on some stupid thing. But the, the, the thrust of the main question really stuck with me. What is sacred to you? Now, uh, obviously that word is, you know, associated with, uh, religious beliefs for the most part, or spiritual beliefs, excuse me. But at the same time, it got me thinking, you know, what is sacred to someone usually has to do with what they consider to be most central and most centric to their, to their core ideals, to the things that actually really matter to them, right? Really, really matter to them. Like, uh, oh yeah, I know, it, it matters to me that, you know, I, I, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to think of a good example without actually listing any examples, which is really sad. And I can't really use food because the problem is food itself would be something like this. Ideals of you know, connection or togetherness or teamwork or cooperation or respect or tolerance or understanding or love or love or love because there's like 50 different types of love. Um, that kind of a thing can be sacred to someone. And it's the same concept with the idea of home. If something is truly, legitimately, substantially significant to someone, well then, why are they being forced to move? Now, I I stress that point because I'm an extremely pragmatic person, as I just mentioned. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of a consequence of living in real life. But the reality here is, if these people just kind of liked living here, then we'll just move them. If these people really have a true, central, sacred reason to live here, if this is HOME, capital H, for them, well then, we shouldn't move them, should we? Now, this then leads to what really pisses me off about this episode, because on the one hand, the ideal of the intangible, the the concept of, um, of a place where you belong, of a place where you should be, of a place where you fit, whether it's politically or ideologically or geographically or in terms of terrain or whatever, right? That kind of a thing, the the, the spot that you really do call home. That is something that you'd think the Federation would value. I, I value that. I imagine several people watching this would value that idea, too. Even though I've never had a home, I actually still can very much get behind the idea of trying to support and indeed defend someone who actually wants to stay in their home. The catch, of course, being the wonderful morass of gray in between capital H and lowercase h, because that's why I keep making that distinction. But if it is actually that, if they reached out to these people, and this really is their home, Home, capital H. This is their sacred ground, whether it's... It it doesn't even matter why. It actually doesn't matter. What matters is that this place is truly integral to where they believe they should be, where they should live. I I keep trying to find other ways to say the word home, and I just keep failing, so I'm just going to say it straight out. The place that is their home, capital H. So pragmatically, politically, I could understand trying to relocate these people. I mean, who gives a damn, right? <laughs> Just go ahead and here. We've got another couple dozen planets for you. We'll cover, you know, all of the problems and efforts. We'll resettle you. We'll help build new things. We'll give you new materials and, and infrastructure and replicators and whatever else you need, right? We got your back. Cool, right? <sighs> but that only works if it's lowercase h. So, having said all of this rambling way of me trying to explain something, and I still feel like I've failed at it, do you think the Federation would be willing to go to bat for Federation citizens who exist in their HOME, capital H? Nope! And that's what pisses me off about this episode. I could really drag this topic out. I could talk about this, but all I'm going to say is this gets into the ideas... Of whether or not an organization should serve the people or the people should serve an organization now call me a weirdo but I figure an organization like the Federation should serve the people not vice versa and I know what you're thinking lore you would ask the, the Federation to go to war to in, to reinitiate conflict with the Cardassians over this one planet yes absolutely you know why because those are Federation citizens, who have the same rights and privileges, and should be defended and treated properly, just like any other Federation citizens should be. Those people again are not just saying, ah, "This is kind of nice. I don't, I don't really feel like moving." You know, I mean, next Tuesday we're doing a kegger and a, a, a trucker. Or what, shoot, what do I call it? They, they go out, and they've got a truck, a tailgate. We've got a tailgate going on, you know. It's just, you can tell I'm really up on the local lingo. You know, and, and, and I, was, I was thinking about putting up a wind chime, you know. No, no. This is something that actually really matters to these people. Really, legitimately core, centric, central, ideal. There's a reason I keep emphasizing this point. Because that is the basis of the whole idea here. This is not just some idle fancy. This is not just some it'd be kind of nice. This is their home. And the Federation should be willing to go to war to defend its citizens' home. Now, that is obviously my opinion. I I, I shouldn't have to preface everything I say with the words in my opinion, but just to make it clear, that's my opinion. But I do actually think Starfleet and the Federation should be willing to go to bat on this one. And they don't. What's interesting is none of the Starfleet officers like this. Picard doesn't like this. Necheyev doesn't like this. But the Federation Council has decided this. And that brings me to a thought. And I've had this thought circling my head for a while now. I, keep, I, I I I myself screw up distinguishing between the Federation and Starfleet. I tend to use the terms interchangeably. I shouldn't do that. In my opinion, based on what we see... Starfleet actually tends to be better than the Federation does. Because, by all accounts, it is the Federation that has the various traits that I despise, like the whole peace-hungry thing. And it is Starfleet who has to put up with the reality of that, and trying to make that actually happen. It's like having a boss who's like, I really like rainbows, and I'm like, okay, well we'll go ahead and add a, a giant mechanical spider to the movie for some reason, because it's our job to make your random whim happen. I mean, you ever have a boss like that? Cause I have more than once. Uh, actually I could probably sit down and think about it, but it, you get the idea. You get the idea. <sighs> Final note before I move on. Um, uh, there's a note here. This is why I have the book open. Um, uh, so, Jerry Taylor's talking about, you know, we, re- we realized uh, in producing Journey's End that this may be fraught with peril. Native Americans have been highly politicized, have a highly politicized voice who are articulate and emphatic in demanding the way that they've been depicted in the past and the way, the way they want to be depicted now. So, <clears throat> keep, him, keep this part in mind. We hired a Native American as a consultant to help us avoid some of these pitfalls. But what we learned is there's a little agreement among the nations and you're going to offend somebody at some point or another, so we try to treat it with the utmost respect and show the value of their metaphysical and physical ways of approaching life that is positive and valuable. Even the depiction of that, we ran into problems with groups who don't want it depicted at all. Okay, cool. You ever heard of the name uh, Jamaki Highwater? If you haven't, and you're interested in Star Trek, do me a favor and go look them up sometime. I just the Wikipedia entry will be fine. Uh, J-A-M-A-K-E. Highwater. Also known as Jack Marks. Some of you who are aware of this story know why I'm bringing this up. But for those of you who are not, I'm going to give a very brief version of this. See... Uh the Starfleet production, remember, they were making Voyager at this point in time. They were already starting production work, because Voyager was going to be starting pretty much right after TNG. Very little gap in between the two. They hired this guy, Jack, in order to be their consultant, their Native American consultant, when it came to designing Chakotay, because they wanted to do things properly. However, for some reason, they decided not to actually hire a real Native American, because Jack Marks, is not a native american in fact he has a long history of basically being a con artist and um, it has been argued this is getting into the realm of some really charged topics and people are still studying this to this day so i don't i'm just speaking from the outside dipping my fingers in here to the to the toe toeing my fingers into the pool here but Long story short, there are several people who think that this one individual has been responsible for a lot of the misrepresentation and misdepiction of Native Americans in Hollywood around this era in history. Uh, When when Voyager and TNG were out, by the way, that's the era I'm talking about. Make of that what you will, but given the comments, I have a really weird feeling that the Native American that they hired was actually him. Because he would have already been there for the Voyager stuff. She doesn't name him, so that's speculation. But uh, that just adds another wonderfully uncomfortable layer to this whole thing. Anyways. All I'm going to say really quick is the episode tattoo moving on. So, moving on to the episode proper. I've kind of hit most of my main points here. Why is the order to forcibly remove these people? I mean, I've already talked about how I think that, you know, Federation should be willing to stand up for its own citizens. That Starfleet should be there to defend its own citizens. But no, 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 no. Let's just force The order is to forcibly relocate them. And that is the source of the conflict. The forced relocation. Um, I don't have a nice way of putting this, so I'm just going to ask this as bluntly as I can. Why? What's really funny is my first thought was just the fact that they're Federation Citizens is the source of the problem, right? Funnily enough, this exact same problem will show up all the frickin' time when it comes to the Maquis later. The end of this episode shows the incredibly obvious solution. Yeah, we bow out of the Federation. Okay, we're cool. Peace. But no. Have to relocate. Then, Troy randomly knows about the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. It's whatever. And then the Kardashians push. It's their usual tactic. That's what they do. Picard stands his ground. Picard tries mo- moving through the law, the whole lawful neutral thing, you know, forcing himself to act within the bounds of the rules as he understands them and change the system from within the system rather than simply going outside the system entirely. And Picard's far more of a Sinclair, whereas, say, Sisko would be more of a Sheridan, to use an analogy that some of you will get. Then, Wesley has a vision and sees Jack. Quick side note, I looked it up just to make sure, but they actually got the same actor to play Jack Crusher every time he's shown up. Nice little tidbit there. Good continuity, good continuity. Um, The Traveler insists he didn't send that vision, so what the hell did that come from? Like, where is that coming from? Now, I'm I'm sorry, I say that so dil... uh... dismissively, but I'm actually kind of legitimately asking, where do you think that vision came from? I'll go and give my interpretation. I think it's basically the idea that he's talking to himself and giving himself permission to do what he was already thinking. (sighs) The more uncomfortable possibility is because the whole thought is reality thing. He literally just remade a recreation of his father, which then was demade, so... Into existence, right... eh, Hang on. And then right back out. I can't... Ah, Whatever. You get the idea. <clears throat> Anyways, that's cool. So, then Worf talks about how I don't wish to alarm these people, but we need to be ready to beam them out. Okay, stupid question. Why do you have to be ready to beam them out? Why do you have to set up like a, a transporting pattern to, to beam these people out? The only reason for this to exist... This is when the plots start to collide and the episode really starts to nosedive in quality. Because what happens is Wesley then hears, oh my god, they're going to forcibly relocate these people, and then he rushes up and warns them, and they say, you must leave. And I have so many questions. First of all, if they're going to beam them up, just do it. Scan for all the people, beam them into Cargo Bay 1. Done. This is, not, this is not super science. There's no mega field of quantum whatever preventing the transporters from working. They can just do it. In fact, later on in this episode, they just beam up their own away team without any issue. Yeah, I know, it's their own away team. But my point is they don't need pattern enhancers. They don't need a transporting beam thing. The only reason for Worf to be there is so that Wesley can find out what they're doing and then warn them about that. Because plot. Next problem is that the uh, the gentleman, I don't know his name, forgive me. It's not the Elder. He shows up and says, yeah, you must leave now. Okay, I, I hate to be that guy, but you don't really have any power to make that happen. Like, if if this actually did escalate and they didn't come to, to the incredibly obvious solution, then they would have been like, you should leave our planet. Okay, so then they'd go back to the Enterprise and then they'd beam them into Cargo Bay 1, put up a force field and relocate them to a new spot. They could just do that. Remember, they were under orders to forcibly relocate if they had to, even though everyone thought that was a dumb idea, all the way up to the, the Admiralty. But no. The Federation Council decided that, oh, we should forcibly relocate these people against their will. Okay. then with, then, of course, we've got the fact that Wesley uh, gives this away. and um, And then the episode just really, really, really starts to fall apart hard. I've actually been kind of with the episode up till this point, really. They've done a decent job of showcasing stuff. There's some stupidity, and the Federation Council is is awful. But for the most part, I'm like, okay, yeah. Picard just reams Wesley, and well, obviously, in a military organization, because Starfleet's military, you do actually have to you know lay down the law when someone basically screws up an operation like this, which is absolutely true. What Picard says, if you pay attention to his word choice and what he's talking about, is so since. You didn't do exactly what you're told. You need to do exactly what you're told. Don't question. Don't disobey. Follow orders. The end. Now, first of all, even though I argue that Starfleet is a military, that's not very Starfleet. Starfleet does not encourage its people to be blind automatons. Second of all, in real life, militaries at least ones that i am familiar with they also don't encourage you to be a mindless automaton in fact it is literally your job to question orders if under under the right circumstances there's there's a whole mess of that like if you're in the middle of a combat zone and the lieutenant says go jump over that ditch then you do it but if you're prepping for an operation and someone says hey i want you to go shoot those civilians you literally your job to say no and to question and challenge that that order you can't tell me that Starfleet, which has done this many times, is unwilling to question orders. Then there's the other layer of this, that the Federation, the Federation's prime principle is to the truth, whether it's scientific truth or personal truth or military truth. First duty, remember that? I bring that point up because this would have been a great way, especially since Moore worked on both episodes, this would have been a great way to tie back into that that Wesley could have thrown that truth thing right back into his face. And it could have helped Picard to maybe find some kind of other solution for this or whatever. But no, instead, Picard just lays down the law and says, you must follow orders no matter what. <laughs> and then Wesley hits him with the truth. What you're doing is wrong. And Picard says, that's not for you to decide. And, and Wesley says, no, it, it, it's still wrong. I'm sorry, it's not for me to decide whether or not something is wrong? <laughs> what? So then, Wesley quits Starfleet. Woo! (laughs) A little cheer goes up back on Earth. Um, And uh, I I don't actually have anything against Wesley Crusher. I know a lot of people do. But I I had to throw the joke in there. Um, So, he he bows out. Uh, Okay. And then he goes and talks to Crusher. Now, actually, this is a pretty good scene. Uh, Wesley and Gates excuse me uh, Will Wheaton and Gates McFadden have some actually really good chemistry and the two act really well off of each other here. She is astonishingly supportive but at the same time she doesn't back down an inch. It's it's the perfect kind of motherly maternal approach there and I like the way she approaches it. I also like the fact that <laughs> the the conversation basically starts by saying mom you know just picture this in real life okay why are you throwing away your promising career in in being a doctor it's okay mom i underwent an indian ritual where dad told me i should stop following in his footsteps i mean okay it's not it's not what you want to hear from someone throughout going, what well, is the equivalent of four years of college? But yeah, anyways, so <clears throat> Or I guess three years. Whatever, you get the idea. But no, she's supportive, and he's like, No, this is this is something I've been pushing for, for a while. I didn't tell you because and, and one of her biggest aggravations, the thing that pisses her off most isn't that he wants to bow out. It's the fact that he didn't tell her. I really like that. Speaking from personal experience, I know exactly what it feels like to just kind of suffer and grin and bear it because, you know, you don't want to disappoint your mother. And your mother being upset because why didn't you just freaking tell me? It's actually happened to me. So he goes down and people start fighting and then he freezes time because why not? Oh yeah, Wesley's a god now, so that's cool. Um, Traveler shows up, ascending to a new plane of his existence. Blah, 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 blah. Um, I don't have much to say about that because it's really, really stupid. But what I do find interesting is the Traveler flat out says, you should let them find their own path. Have faith that they will be able to to figure things out on their own. Give them a chance. And he doesn't say it, but he's basically saying the Prime Directive. I'm pretty sure that was deliberate. And, uh... I... 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 mm. You always need a delicate touch when it comes to the Prime Directive, or at least a situation where you have power to alter someone else's history and course of life, because, well, even if you intervene with good intentions, you may not make things better, right? So, kind of understandable on that one. I do find it kind of interesting that Wesley just basically walks away from a literal firefight. So then they cut up, and Gul Evek backs off. I always, did like, I always did like him, and that's kind of the reason, I, again, I feel he came back so many times. And then we get to the end of the episode, which is really, really stupid. Oh yeah, we should just leave the Federation. Do You know, that thing that everyone else has been screaming at the TV for the last 30 minutes. It's such an obvious solution. And what pisses me off most is no one even mentions it. Not one word of anyone's even postulating the idea of them leaving the Federation. That's the first stupid thing. The second stupid thing is, well, they're not Federation citizens, so that means they're just people in Cardassian territory. Yeah, I think you get the problem with that. That, and that alone, is the only thing that helps set up the Maquis, because, well, now we have a bunch of people, humans even, who are living in Cardassian territory. Which, for all intents and purposes, makes them Cardassian citizens, or, slightly more accurately, a Cardassian property. You can ask the Bajorans about that one. God, the Maquis were so badly handled from day one. You know, the more I think about it, the more I think the Maquis should have never existed at all. I mean, it's not like they used them for anything over on Voyager to begin with, but even if they had been utilized properly, there are so many issues with the nature of the Maquis that I don't think they should have even gone in this direction. Just do something else with it. You know, make it people who were conquered... Uh, enslaved servitor races of the Cardassian Union who were rebelling against the Cardassians, and then they got maybe they got some sympathy from the Federation who were you know excuse me excuse me from Starfleet. Got to be more clear about that. Like like I said earlier, so from Starfleet personnel who want to support them because it's the right thing to do, and you know then you go no. Instead you got to have this whole colonies demilitarized zone border garbage peace treaty blah. But at least this episode wasn't as bad as I remember. Holy crap. Uh, I'm sure the next one... uh, I don't know what I'll think about the next one. We'll get there when we get there. For now. I'll see you guys next time.